Mental wellness is a big part of a successful expat experience, whether you're going abroad for a short stint or making the move long-term. This is why you should visit the International Therapist Directory. It provides online listings of professional mental health therapists who are familiar with the expat as well as the third culture kid life. With over 250 members in more than 35 different countries, this resource lists therapists, counselors, psychologists, and psychiatrists interested in providing culturally sensitive, cross-cultural treatment and care for today's expat community. Visit internationaltherapistdirectory.com to find out more about this global therapy resource. In order to explain how this episode came to be, I have to talk about mental health. Unsurprisingly, mental wellness has become such an important discussion. You could probably chalk that up to more awareness, as well as people being more forthcoming about their struggles that have made it less of a taboo topic. And in expat spaces, it's the same. With awesome resources, as the International Therapist Directory, globally mobile individuals and families can find more professionals to discuss the ups and downs of life abroad. But I've been hanging around in these global mobile streets for a minute, and one challenge has always been to find black and brown mental health professionals who've also lived the international lifestyle. And so I was on the hunt for resources for the black expat community when I honestly stumbled upon my next guest. Enter Dr. Nita Ramkumar. To be honest, I was geeked out when I found her. She's a former third culture kid, current expat, with PhD training in counseling psychology. And she's currently living in Cameroon. So with all of that, you know she's got a crazy good story. Nita comes from an Indo-Guyanese background with a family whose roots in Guyana go back five generations before her parents separately immigrated to the United States. That by itself is a story in identity. But then you have to add her experiences living in Singapore and Malaysia as a third culture kid before returning to the U.S., living in Colorado and Texas, and then eventual moves that include France, Fiji, and now Cameroon. And then you can begin to start to scratch beyond the surface. Given her own background, Nita often applies a cultural competency framework to connect with her clients. We spend a significant amount of time discussing what it means to belong, both when you do and you don't look like the local communities you're moving in and out of. We explore how living in Fiji drew her closer to being part of the Indian diaspora. And we also examine the microaggressions and the privilege that comes with being a corporate expat of color and the identity questions that require some wrestling. Her life story is somehow unique, but it is also oddly familiar in some ways. Welcome to the Global Chatter. with another episode of the global chatter and i think i'm at the point where i'm doing all my interviews early in the morning so if you guys get my morning voice i apologize but today is going to be a wonderful episode because as all of you know and have been listening for a while i love bringing in different perspectives around this expat cross-cultural third cultural 
kid, just anything having to do with crossing borders, stories and identities. And, and I think that having Nita on here is going to be amazing because there are so many commonalities and, and, and nuances, I think, between the two of us that this is going to make this really enjoyable. So welcome to the chatter. How are you this morning? Hi, I'm doing great. Yeah. Thank you for taking the early call. I mean, here's the thing between the two of us. I love this because no one can see video. You look great. <laughs> I, on the other hand, I'm not going to tell. I'm not going to tell the folks what's going on. I'm just saying between the two of us, she's radiating and I'm drinking warm beverages early in the morning. <laughs> Thank you. Had a couple hours ahead of you. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be worse, right? If you were, if you were looking like me, and it's like what eleven? Is it eleven o'clock? Twelve o'clock? What time is it? Yeah, it's twelve o'clock here. It might be one. Twelve o'clock in Cameroon. Yeah. Oh, y'all! And this is why I'm excited to yeah. have her. Most of you know that I grew up in Cameroon, and when I found out she was in Cameroon, like, albeit she's not in Yaoundé. but it doesn't matter. She's in Cameroon. I was just like, I have to have her on the podcast because. I rarely find folks who are able to come on who are for, who are living in Cameroon. So this is going to be fun. So, all right, let's kick it off with the first question. And this is what <laughs> I ask everyone. But where does your international or cross-cultural living story really start or begin? At least five generations ago, my family uh immigrated to the Caribbean to Guyana um, as part of the British colonial system as indentured laborers. And then my mother immigrated to the United States to New York City when she was 12 years old um, with my, my grandfather had secured some work there and uh, all of her eight siblings came on over. And then when she married my dad when he was in his 20s, um, the rest of my dad's family uh, came over. And so when I was a baby, I think my very first trip was actually to Guyana. I think I was something like six months old to a year, had a passport, and that was my first country to go. And we haven't been back since. That's, that's kind of on the list. Wow. So our cross-cultural story, I think, started with um, this first day di- uh, with two diasporas to the United States. Mm. So your your father as well grew up in Guyana? My yes, my my father did and uh he came to the US when he was in his 20s. And it's actually interesting to see like the generational difference between my mom and my dad of having spent your teenage years growing up in the US versus not. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I mean to really think about if we want to use these modern terms of TCKs your parent, well, your mom, at least, because she came as a preteen, mm-hmm. right? And then your dad, to a certain degree, I mean, of course, once you're on the other side of 20, 20 seems really young. <laughs> when you're like 20, you're like, oh, that's an adult. But like, once you're like away from 20, I'm like, you're still a baby because you're you're still forming your, your adult identity. Exactly. And Oh my goodness. And so, and I'm really interested because I'll be honest, I don't know very many folks who kind of have that story. So you haven't had a chance to go back to Guyana. Did you have your parents gone back at all? Not since then, not since that visit. So yeah, I think um, it's, it's been on our list to kind of make a roots trip and, and go back at some point. Um, So it's there, but that's, 
what that was what I'd call the first at least cross-cultural journey. That's that's how I became a cross-cultural kid, a child of immigrants, first-generation American. Mm. Um, and I, I and when I was six years old is when I became a TCK, and mm. my dad uh, got a position overseas. He was with AT and T, and so mm-hmm. off we went as corporate brats to Singapore and it was an incredible you know changing experience oh you know we're just kind of settling in of being in a new country and then all of a sudden to be representing the United States in Singapore <laughs> and where did you and I, I didn't ask this question so when when you're when you guys left the states what state was your family like up until six where had you been living we were living in New Jersey and Illinois Okay, so you're living more up north. Okay, mm-hmm. and then you went to Singapore, which, once again, I think every time anyone mentions Singapore, I'm like, I love Singapore. <laughs> I have such good memories of having traveled to Singapore. And so how long were you in Singapore for? We were in Singapore for three years. Yep. Okay. And then we, my my dad's, the project finished, and we decided to go to Texas. At that point, we had a ranch in Texas. My mom really loves animals. The ranch grew up on a farm. So I think the big city girl and her was really craving um, land. And so we, w- we went back to Texas and my dad was looking into other projects and uh, mm-hmm. we had such a hard time. Um, we were living just outside of Houston with the adjustment from this very multicultural like environment in Singapore. Yeah. To yeah. um, very homogenous uh, white suburb of yeah. Houston, and um, within six months, my dad had found a job in Kuala Lumpur, and we just packed back <laughs> up and we headed back to Southeast <laughs> Asia. Back to the peninsula, though. Exactly. Like, it, it, that's Malaysia. Literally, for those of you who are terrible at geography or don't know this, Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. Malaysia are on the same peninsula. So he was like, let me go back to the Malay Peninsula. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, that's so when I say to people, I was like, really, we spent five years, like really five developmental years in Southeast Asia <laughs> with this little stint of culture shock in uh, in, in Texas. At in, in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's here's what I'm here's what I'm really interested in. And I. And you were young. So let's, 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 can you give me an age range where you've like six to 11 for all of this or maybe older? Yeah. So six to 12. Mm-hmm. Maybe six okay. to 11, something like that. So here's what I'm, I'm interested in, right? Cause you've already, just your story up until this point has already taken quite a few turns. So having, I know from my experience, having been to Singapore and then, you know, what I understand of Malaysia I'm really curious for you, and I know this is really early on, like what did identity really look like for you and maybe your parents? Because there is, and <laughs> you're part of a diaspora community, right? In terms of having your your family come from the Indian subcontinent to Guyana early, you know, several generations beyond. But then being in Singapore, where Singapore has a very... <laughs> has a very strong Indian community, right? And in Malaysia, and then also like you referencing living in Texas, what does that look like? Because I've definitely been in spaces where 
you know, for lack of a better term, like I look like the people, but our stories are so different. So I'm wondering what that, if that even came up or because, or, or were the dynamics just different in Singapore because they were, they were just so used to folks coming from all kinds of places that assumptions weren't made. I love that. I think that this has been a little bit of a theme and an interesting um, addition, I think, to the like additional layer to the international experience for us. Uh, because, yeah, I think there, in, in some ways, it was very, uh, it was very nice to grow up in an environment where I could see like other South Asians and have that kind of reflected. And actually, it did allow us to learn more about certain aspects of our culture that we wouldn't really be able to learn in certain suburban parts of the United States. I think they're alive and well, like these pockets in New York, uh, but elsewhere are kind of more difficult to find. But it was interesting because, um, you know, we're learning then uh, and kind of incorporating another kind of diaspora India culture. And so one of the examples is um, one of our family traditions. We used to be getting um, masala dosa on Sunday. And so we would go to Little India and Singapore. And like ever since then, wherever we've lived, we have like hunted down where is the good um, dosa place. If it's like Boulder, Colorado or Austin, Texas, wherever it is. Uh, but so when people see us like loving our, our dosa, they really think this is something that we got ancestrally or through our generation. But nobody in like the Guyanese tradition or for our family, did we learn how to cook this like South Indian dish? This came from our TCK experience in Singapore and it was a tradition we adopted, right? Um, and in other ways, I think, especially like to, to the example of it being, um, of us being younger and kids is like an example that comes to mind with my sister who was in kindergarten at the time. And she got very confused on national day or international day because the white American teacher had my sister sit down um, when it was like time for the American students to stand up and made her stand up for India. And so my poor sister comes home all confused, like mom, where, where am I from? And, uh, you know, of course, the, the teacher got a talking to by my mom, but this was international school, this is the American school, right, in the 90s, where um, you think that these things would be understood, but there's still the, the microaggressions and uh, these different complexities of being an expat of color, an American expat of color. Right. I even think it, it's funny when, even to this day, what people assume an American expat looks like versus <laughs> what it could be. <laughs> I feel like I felt that in the Middle East where people are just like, wait, you're American? I'm like, do you hear me though? Yeah. <laughs> and they're just like, you speak English, right? Like it doesn't, exactly. they're not necessarily registering the accent, right? They're just like, you're just speaking English. But um yeah, I the fact that someone would assume, and I'm giving grace that it is the it was the '90s. I would hope it would be better now, but I also don't hold my breath right. <laughs> breath because people can still make assumptions. But here's here's the other part to it. Then even okay, so that's even within expat spaces, and and this may or may not happen. But I'm just even curious in in, in Singapore and Malaysia. 
how did you have any interactions with this with the Indian Singaporeans or Indian Malaysians? Like, were there any interactions there, and maybe even some assumptions there, or was it just, you know, no one really thought about it, or or they were just like, well, we could tell they're American, I think, <laughs> and they're not from here. I think both. I, I I mean, I think there was like, you know, a little bit of privilege in being able to move through these places and markets and being able to tell call people auntie and uncle. Um, but there was also the sort of um, uh, shut your mouth, kids, don't say anything um, while we're trying to bargain here. <laughs> because okay. Which is like every start- black and brown, every black and brown person <laughs> is just like, look, I know <laughs> we're not from the same place, but if I don't say anything, I might get the better yes. deal. So you. <laughs> yeah, like don't give yourself away. It's going to get pretty obvious once you guys start, you right? know, open your mouth. So... <laughs> Yeah, so I think there were some ways that we were, you know, accepted, um, and and I think you know the the most powerful thing was just being part of a multicultural community and society at such an end yeah. young age. I think that that made such an impact on me, and that's really what came out with that abrasive move to to outside of Houston. <laughs> it's just to, <laughs> to be like, what what is this, Sorry. and to be. <laughs> this exotic thing. And then people were thinking like, Oh, okay, you're from Singapore. I was like, no, I'm not from Singapore. The same thing. when we moved from Malaysia to Colorado and to try to explain to people <laughs> that, no, I'm not Malaysian, you know, just because we moved from Malaysia, but it was just, it's, it, it, yeah, I guess I look like I could be, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, I, and the other side of it too, is that I kind of learned uh, one part I, is, I think at a very early age, which um, you wouldn't expect to have to do this, but the role of being a cultural ambassador of uh, right. when people are like, well, you don't look American. And for me to be like, have you been to America? Like, here's what we look like. We are a multi-ethnic society. <laughs> and, you know, and, and sort of having to learn to educate and inform really young in order to just even defend I mean, to get out of the role of defending your own identity and more educating, like the ignorance or mm-hmm. whatever it is, because I think that's the only way to cure to this, is for somebody to tell their stories and explain for the people to really assign like, okay, this, this can happen. And then maybe you'll change the world in some little way instead of just sitting there getting angry and being so misunderstood. <laughs> but it's not easy, I think, to find the words to articulate this in elementary school. Right. And and that's, I mean, that's what I was going to say to your point. I think you are absolutely right. And, and especially for TCK's expat kids or just kids who just have a different identity. You find yourself having to argue and defend things at like eight and it's, <laughs> but, but, but it's a skill that stays with you your whole life. Right. It's like other, other folks never learn that skill, but it's somehow you're like, you know, I'm gonna have to go ahead and just make my case. Cause apparently they don't believe that I could be from here or that I could come from here and not be part of the system. A, a, you know, a citizen of that country. And so, so you, you guys were in Singapore and Malaysia with a small stint in Houston, apparently all roads lead to Houston at some point <laughs> for most people, um, or, or Texas, oddly enough, you get, so did you, you guys left from Malaysia and went to Colorado? We did. Yeah. Okay. How long were you in Colorado for? I'm in Colorado for two years. So I'm going to ask this question only because someone asked this question of me yesterday in an interview. <laughs> I'm just curious. What was the harder move? Was it moving to Asia for the first time or the second time? Because I know Houston was in the middle. 
or was it coming back to the States, either coming back to Texas the first time or coming back to Colorado after you had lived both in Singapore and Malaysia? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think uh, culturally it was more difficult moving back to the United States, but uh, developmentally where I was, um, I had a much I had a much harder time actually moving back to Malaysia. So maybe we thought like, oh, what a relief, we're going back. And uh, and I think this is the other interesting thing. Um, my mother also had a really difficult time adjusting because I think she was expecting like it was going to be similar. But um, as you know, there's just Malaysia and, and Singapore can be night and day and some things want yes. and how the government is and how like organized things are or not. And uh, yes, but for me, it was like this little pre-adolescent transfer from being just like a kid to like entering the world where there are mean girls and like <laughs> yeah. the popular kids. Yeah. And it just felt right. like a lot had happened. And so that was a huge learning experience for me in a adapting to an international school because what had happened is it, it took me time to actually break into um, like the English speaking group. Interesting. I actually, well, my best friend for a long time was a Japanese student and she was just learning English. And so I was like kind of learning Japanese to communicate with her and we, our, our families actually became very, very good friends, but it was, it was very interesting. I think like it was a interesting reminder, maybe for my whole family, that every move is different. So even if you think you got it, mm. there is no really going back. <laughs> it's never the same. Can I ask why it was hard at that point to get into that English speaking group? It, Cause I, I presume that's your first language. Yeah, exactly. So I think it was just clicky. And uh, mm. like these, it was a very, it was a smaller, newer international school. And so I think there was just like less students and they had clicked the year before. And so then when I arrived for that new year, it was just harder to like, to, and eventually they became my best friend. Eventually I totally did mm. break into this group and uh, we hung out all the time. It was just, um, but I think it was like, when I look back now as an adult, it was a very interesting thing to look at group dynamics and sort of what happens mm -hmm. in international schools. And it's not just like, oh, we're this cohesive multicultural society right. here that there are still like the popular kids and it might not look like it does in American schools. And there are these like these belonging needs and trying to assimilate and fit in to whatever the ongoing culture is. So there's so much adjustment and adapting I mean, every kid and every age and every country and every school culture could be another challenge. It could be another aspect to the move. So then I guess from leaving that though, you get to Colorado and you spent two years, is that two years in the States and then you guys went somewhere else? After that, my family stayed in the U S we went, we did go to Texas right um, before I started high school. And so I have the, the privilege of Austin, Texas being my hometown now because of that. But the time in Colorado was really interesting because it was very white. It was a suburb of Boulder, um, Louisville, Superior. <laughs> and we were actually yeah. just a few minutes away from the Columbine shooting. And we were there in school that day. 
it was very memorable and uh, and how that affected that entire like, community and region. Uh, so it was interesting. I, I guess if I had to to capture my Colorado time, it was I felt very much like a fish out of water and out of place. But generally, it was a very kind group. And like our time in Colorado was like a very beautiful time. I don't know what it was that was like kind of different, maybe from our Katie experience. I think it did help being there the whole two years opposed to just the six months. It kind of gave time to yeah. adapt and find our, our people and our place. So here's, here's what I find interesting. So then, the, so Colorado for you kicks off an extended period in the States, right? Yeah. Because I'm assuming either finishing middle school, high school, and what ultimately would be college, right? In that period. Okay. It's always a fun, fun part, not fun part at all. Uh, For the TCK who's kind of traveled around, you relocate to Texas. And and in terms of of sort of identity, right? You you had mentioned sort of some of the challenges early on. What did that look like for you? Because of that, you've come back to Texas at this point. You've lived in a couple of countries. You've lived in a couple of other places. And were you still trying to figure out identity? Was it something that you were like, okay, well, I've had these experiences, but now I'm Texan. Like, what what was it for you? Absolutely. And I think that the identity thing is ongoing. I mean, I think I had another major opening all, all the way through graduate school so it was it was sort of an ongoing I will I will call um so this period that I was in in Texas a little bit of my for high school a bit of my whitewashing like mm. it was the phase where I really was um pressured or really trying to assimilate I think color like it, the Colorado years was really me trying to figure out what it is to be an American because I had left when I was six years old, telling everyone I'm American in Southeast Asia and coming back and not mm-hmm. understanding what is homecoming. <laughs> Explain to me mm-hmm. what football is. And uh, mm-hmm. so I like started to grasp these things. But then I, in Texas, I managed to go through, you know, this was the first time actually lived anywhere in my life for four years. So I did all four years mm-hmm. in, in high school. And part of that was my family. We're just like, okay, we've, we've been so mobile. I think or it's getting harder to do these moves and sort of separate the kids from best friends that now that these attachments are getting deeper. And so it's interesting because I actually have both experiences, being with TCK and of uh, really being able to put down roots somewhere a little bit, what kind of later in life at 14. But high school, I went to really an all-American high school, like red, white, and blue. And um, with our colors, we won our, we had a huge football team. We won state a couple times. Um, what I learned later, uh, years later, um, even pretty recently, is that our high school was established um, as part of the white flight out of the cities during um, integration. So my school, if I had to estimate it, was something like 96% white. And it was a huge high school. And so I really found myself I, I, trying to fit in. Like I really brought an international perspective, but I was kind of like the exotic one. And uh, 
there wasn't really other models or really even enough like other minorities to really like connect and understand what was that. So I was just oftentimes like the, the only minority in this group of kids at a party or um, as part of this club. Mm -hmm. So that was a very interesting experience. And I think uh, it allowed me to sort of have this, I've been talking about this with um, another colleague who is really looking at like BIPOC mental health professionals and um, the barriers to getting licensed and things like that, even within the United States. And I think some of this like really helped me uh, to have these experiences and understand white culture and sort of be a part of it. And then since then, it's been like my great undoing. It's been lovely. <laughs> it's been coming full back circle and connect, reconnecting with all of you. And now I think this like white American culture I can identify with is also part of mine. It's also something I grew up in and of and can see like the positives from that. And I also can experience some of the harms that it does if we're unaware or ignorant of the impact of being in just these bubbles, these white bubbles without a lot of diverse experiences or faces. I think that that is a great transition point that I want to hit to after the break, because I really want to talk about these bubbles that we can find ourselves in. You are obviously, and I, this, they will know this from the intro, you're a psychologist, but also you have lived as an adult <laughs> in a lot of different areas, right? That just took us through your kind of kind of your up, up, upbringing, but really starting to kind of unpack some of these spaces that we find ourselves in and, and would love to talk about how mental health plays a role in that. So if y'all hang on with us, uh, we'll be back with you after the break. This message comes from one of our affiliate partners, FlexJobs. FlexJobs has 100% verified job listings, career experts, and resume help. They've helped people find great remote jobs since 2007. If you're looking for your next remote opportunity and want to save up to 30% when you sign up for a membership, visit theblackexpat.com forward slash codes to learn more. All right, so... You know, her story has taken us, I, I feel like, around the United States and part of, and around the Malaysian <laughs> Peninsula. And and this part, I think, is going to be interesting to weave because part of it has to do with, with your professional identity and your training. And part of it has to do with sort of how your identity has sort of grown in all the places or it, or has been reframed in some of the places that you've lived as an adult. And so, as I mentioned before that we went off, for break. You were in Texas and and I know that you went to I believe the University of Texas at Austin is that where you went where you went for undergrad? Yeah, undergrad, University of Texas, UT. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. We won't hold that against you. Um <laughs> anyway, well, I went to grad school at Texas A&M, so everybody <laughs> hates me. Everybody hates you. <laughs> <laughs> And so get to piss off both sides of Texas. Of course, because why why oh whatever, it's big enough, they can handle it. Anyway. So I I'm curious. So at the at the grad level, right, what did you end up studying? What did you what was your goal professionally? Oh yeah. You know what though? I I should go a little bit into undergrad because I was a double major in psychology and history. 
Mm-hmm. And it was really confusing for me in a way because I just loved both and I couldn't see me giving like one up. And I think it, it was a very rare major combination. So for a little while I was toying with, like I, I was on the debate team in high school. So was I going to use my history degree to go to law school or was I going to use my psychology degree to go to grad school? And eventually I did choose a counseling psychology a PhD program. And I went, what I would say um, is two hours away to the other side of the world from UT to Texas A&M. And for like, this is kind of irrelevant in the international context, but for those of you um, who, who know like that um, UT is one of the most liberal, progressive, really college campuses and A&M is one of the most conservative in the country so it was really these two polar extremes two hours drive away from one another and that in and of itself was a very interesting uh, cross-cultural experience going from sort of inner city hippie Austin to um, cowboy country which I actually felt kind of well suited for given that my parents had uh, we'd spent our childhood summers on the ranch mm-hmm. and in, in rural parts of Texas. So, uh, but I was definitely like this multicultural aspect became very, very salient living in uh, this um, rural university. I think it's funny um, that sometimes we don't realize that those skills can very much be used domestically, especially depending how big and diverse a country is, or even if not, right? Um, oh, totally, yeah. You, you know what I mean? Because, yeah, Texas is as big as some countries, right? Just as a state. <laughs> no, real. I mean, not to it be funny, it's a big state. I've driven across it. Yeah. And uh, so it, it shouldn't even be surprising that if you go from one part to the other, it's different. You know, I I yeah. think also when we tell stories of cultures and places and people, we we really want to put things in a box. It's so easy to just say, well, all X, Y, and Z is this, right? But there's nuance, and and a state like Texas where there's a certain quote unquote identity, there's nuance. You're right. Austin is very different from from you know I would say a Dallas or from an El Paso or from a San Antonio or any of the little places in between. What what did you think you were going to do? Like, I, I have an idea, but did you see yourself working with those with an international perspective? Or was it just, I'm interested in the subject matter, and then that kind of came later? Yeah, not not at all. I mean, really, <laughs> I was thinking I would just have, like, a little private practice, probably in Austin, and have, like, this flexible schedule and help people, and that'd be great. And it's just like, I, I sort of fell into, um, I don't even know what to call it, an abyss that I never want to get out of, I suppose. <laughs> because, <laughs> and I really love that I actually discovered my this international psychologist dream for me in College Station, in this rural hmm. Texas county. Uh, and there is so many parallels that showed up mainly being um, the need for like rural mental health services that in these counties that people are driving, having to drive two, three hours just to get to a mental health professional and having culturally competent care. So 
I ended up having both personally and professionally this huge um, multicultural blossoming and unpacking that happened for me out of grad school. And um, it will, uh, part of it is I was, for example, part of the Hispanic Graduate Student Association and um, started salsa dancing and my best friend was Mexican American and just exposed me to all of these different cultural pockets um, that I fell in love with. We actually traveled to Mexico together. And I also started getting in touch with the International uh, Indian Student Association and really started reconnecting with sort of my heritage and realizing like I'm really not Indian <laughs> like this, mm-hmm. this is or or understanding what it was in an as an adult which I hadn't had which I hadn't done since the Singapore Malaysia days right mm-hmm. as as a kid and sort of so that's why I was saying it, it, this this period of actually being in the supposedly very homogenous like white place was actually very full of very culturally rich experiences that actually really pushed me to look for it more and to have more of these cross-cultural encounters. I find that really interesting. I mean, let's talk a little bit more about kind of connecting with the International Indian Student Association, right? I'm presuming, but just based on the name that those students were those who had come to the United States from India or maybe some other parts of the world to study. So they were international students. Yeah. Right. Right. Obviously. And so. Opposed to a diaspora. Right. Mm-hmm. How did those dynamics work? Because I, I think even within a, I hasten to say, even an Indian American context, your context is still, <laughs> still different, right? Like, because your, your, your family didn't come directly from Indian immigrant here. They came from the Caribbean. <laughs> so how did, how did that, how did those conversations and nuances go for you? Exactly. I think that's, I mean, that was, I think a part that contributed to like this belonging struggle. And it's something that I think, a lot of Indians from India are actually maybe even now becoming aware or like unaware of the extent of the diaspora, Mm. that there are Indians in Fiji, Mauritius, South Africa, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty much anywhere the British empire was, you will find Indians now. (laughs) Right. Uganda. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and that there's these different pockets and nuances, exactly. And so there, there is like, I think some education or there may even be some judgment, especially maybe with older generations on looking at who left and mm. whether it was their choice or not. And like how far we may or may not have strayed from the values. Mm. And I think there's sort of also on the Caribbean side, what do we do? What are our customs and how are they different? And so since we actually haven't, we, we did travel to India when uh, we were living in Singapore, but other than that, we haven't lived in India. And I, so a lot of my contact with like other Indian communities had been these diaspora communities. So the international students were pretty awesome. I think that they were already the small, like isolated group. And it was a very interesting bridge for me because they were living in sort of my world, in my Texas branchy world. Yeah. And they kind of just appreciated that I reached out. And there were certain things that I just felt like 
I feel like the food is one of the first things, but um, I I learned how to make like the most delicious chai from like one of these students and I'd, like still use that recipe everywhere. So it was a way of reconnecting even in the middle of this place. But there were other times where um, we would go out um, for like where all the student bars and clubs were and there would be like this couple uh, kissing outside of the door. And so one of the guys told me if this was India right now, there would be an entire crowd watching them. And like, I know this now, but at the time I was just like, what, really? Like it's it's that inappropriate kind of thing. And so really having um, a sense to know of like where my cultural meter was and that you don't actually have to be going overseas to understand what your culture is it really is interacting with people from other cultures where you can start to see what your lens is what your worldview is yeah no I think that that's great I mean I there's so many commonalities in what you've said that I think about that happens for a lot of diaspora communities right where it's (laughs) it's always this I I don't want to use the word tension because I feel like it's a negative connotation but there is this there is this difference, right, between the folks who kind of stayed from the, I guess, from the source, <laughs> you know, for whatever, you know, and then the people who left for whatever reason, circumstance yeah. or, 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 or whatever. And so uh, I always sort of tend, I always think about, yeah, it's sometimes hard to explain, like, especially when you're, when you're the only one of you somewhere else and everyone says, oh, you're this, right? But then you meet the people who are like, for real, like just got off the plane from there. And then you're like, I'm not as much as I, I thought. I mean, I'm kind of this, I'm the like light version, right? Like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not in a pure form. I'm the like, I don't want to say watered down, but you know what I mean? It's like dark chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate. Right, right. Exactly. And, and it was interesting to kind of interact with them, with them understanding, like they're living, working, going to school in this environment. Yeah. They understand the environment that I have acculturated to. Yes. And so we could really, like, I could really ask the questions more or less and not have to be stepping around and be like, how am I being judged here for, right. for my naivete? <laughs> I love, I mean, I, even for me in college, I love like the international student, the African student unions, all of that were the best, I think, because you're right. It's sort of the best of both worlds, right? You get people like we're, you get it because we're all in, we're in the Mm -hmm. same environment, even if we started different, right? And we're still navigating the shared identity, even though our experiences are once again different. And so I know throughout this, we were talking about this offline, somehow throughout your, your, your graduate experience, postgraduate experience, you go back abroad. <laughs> so at some point in the story, you either, it's either Fiji or France. I'm trying to keep it straight right after you finish your degree. Is that correct? Which one, which one was it? Yes. So, um, you know, it was very interesting. I start, so I told you I started traveling and, uh, Mexico was actually the first country that I, um, tried to backpack, but I knew not at all what I was doing. I did not show up with a backpack. I showed up with a suitcase that I very quickly regretted. My first trip was I went to Mexico. I just knew I wanted to travel again. Like there was some part of me that wanted to go. And so I I planned a backpacking trip with a friend who just backpacked Europe, but I had no idea what I was doing. I literally showed up with a suitcase, but I like quickly regretted the moment we landed. (laughs) 
was like, okay. But I'm so proud of myself for just like I, I having this international craving and really honoring it. And yeah. it was like some moment in the, in a hostel where there was like three languages being spoken in the the common area. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like some light bulb turned on. It was like my I'm TCK light bulb. And I was like, this is where I belong. Like <laughs> the place where there's like these languages you don't understand or a little bit. These like all these people who are, are from these different, these, this no belonging background. And so something after that, I was traveling between every semester. I had an international trip planned and I was desperately trying to get it out of my system so that I could come back and quote unquote, get a real job and like settle down close to my clients. Right. Cause this was like way before the age of telepsychology. Uh, this right. was like before the age of trip advisor, this was lonely planet days guys. Right. And, and so I ended up taking a year off after I finished my PhD because there's a whole other process we need to do to get licensed. And I went, um, I followed a partner at the time who was teaching English in France. And so I was living in Paris for a little while. And then I thought, you know, there's no point in me learning French or investing in my backpacker budget on French classes um, because I'm a Texas girl and I really need to work on Spanish. Spanish, right. So I went to Spain and I enrolled in a language school there um, for like six months. And then on every break, I was traveling to other countries in Europe and uh, Morocco. And so I call that my post-PhD gap year because we don't have a gap year, (laughs) you know, in the U.S. And my parents, frankly, would not have let me take one. It was like, so I make this joke of like, I had to get a doctorate before you like, right. let me go. <laughs> can I, can I jump in with the ironies of ironies about the Spanish? <laughs> can I, can I? Because you're in Cameroon, which is predominantly Francophone, right? You're so, not yeah, Texas. The irony is and that I, married, fell, I fell in love with a French guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was like uh huh uh huh uh-huh. I was like wait a minute she's not even in anywhere that's using Spanish. That's exactly that's exactly what happened, and so that's the that's the other twist and turn. Um, so I went I went and did whatever I could after I um, got licensed to just get a position overseas. And I landed in Fiji and teaching at the university there, and that is huh. where I met my partner who's French. And so, uh, and then I, I moved to Cameroon with him because of his work. So there's, yeah, the, the, the full international expat, everything just, um, you never really know. Did we learn the French though? Or is it still like, nah, (laughs) did you ever? We're learning the French now. Now? Yes, 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 exactly. I mean, in some ways, it's okay this way uh, to actually be, you know, learning an environment. No, you have to use it, but it was just, yeah, it was so, no, I, it's so it's ironic with all so of this. Funny to never me, right? <laughs> and that's, I, that's why I laugh when I tell that story. I was like, yeah, I was like, what am I going to learn French for? And I like couldn't see any use for it. It was so funny <laughs> at the time, but it just, it, something keeps bringing me back. And 
yeah so I think it, it was it was a it was an interesting thing because I was spent I spent a lot of my time actually running I think from the international lifestyle the global lifestyle it mm. took me a while before I really got that like it was going to be more than just traveling every chance I got that there was something more there and then in Fiji was the first time I think I really got to develop my professional identity as an international psychologist and what that means and what I could do and so that's what I mean by the sort of abyss I fell in that I don't think I ever want to get out of because <laughs> I, I mean, I, I love that I sort of followed my, for what it felt like at the time, this like selfish need for vacation. Yeah. yeah. And just, but really it was my following um, this passion and I didn't know where the road would lead, but it really is leading full circle. And I, let's let's talk about that a little bit deeper because I, you know, one of the things that I've, I think I've always struggled even with the work they do with the Black expat is that it's been kind of hard to identify, you know, BIPOC, so for folks who don't know the, what that term is, Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, practitioners and clinicians and mental health professionals, right, who understand some of this international life nuances. And that's not to say that someone living domestically could not be a great clinician or practitioner, right? Working with expats, working with third culture kids, working with all these different dynamic groups. But there is something to be said when someone kind of understands that extra layer. And and one of the challenges I've like I've said is just finding folks who have that intersection <laughs> like your like your story right because none of our stories are the same but then they're similar <laughs> right yes. who have that that perspective and then working with clients and so one of the things i'm really interested in hearing from you is just in the work that you're doing right um obviously you have your own personal well to kind of draw from but also your training what are what are maybe some of the nuances to the experiences you're seeing with maybe expats of color and community expats of color or even how identity kind of plays itself out when people are moving to these different places and particularly if they're a minority in those spaces? Yeah. And I, I think one of the the biggest challenges is uh maybe telling our stories or having them integrated on our end. Because I think that's the thing that's missing. I think that even in the United States, like the international experience um, aside, uh, there's so much work and unpacking we need to, we need to do with our own identity and our own belonging stories. And um, you know, very few of us are like strictly like bicultural. I mean, there's like that that doesn't mean just one thing. There's a, you have a different mix, and there's different spaces where you amplify different parts of your identity intentionally or maybe unintentionally if you're really not aware of how these different parts of identity are actually coming together. And then I think when going internationally, that puts it in a whole nother context that's also in flux. So my, and nuanced and layered and uh, as we were talking about, it's never really the same. So um, Fiji was, for example, a very interesting experience for me. Uh, be, this is my first time being an adult and being able to blend in as local 
and people speaking to me in Fijian Hindi with me really not being able to, like we're passing as local and uh, having some cultural overlap. In fact, what we discovered is a, a lot of cultural overlap with the Caribbean in terms of the cuisine, for example, more than like continental India, which was very interesting to discover. But then uh, having to explain your story to so many different contexts and different people that I just wonder if we have a chance to do enough of this like identity work on our own end, on the back end of understanding like the pain points and the celebratory points and like what about it makes it our superpower or how is it our strength or how is it our resilience? Because there's not a lot of spaces or places where we can really carefully unpack that. Mm -hmm. and look at how these different um, threads can come together in an, in an cohesive way, in an integrative way, where you feel like a full person, where you can express, you know, and represent all your identities, um, and that maybe for different, in different degrees or in different contexts. I also, I also think it's interesting when I listen to former third culture kids who then become expats, because there's, there's, I feel like there's a shifting, right? Because now you're an adult and maybe there's more of awareness of even kind of what your parents went through, <laughs> through moving, right? Mm -hmm. So looking at your expat experience as an adult and, and we're talking about identity, do you think that, I mean, your parents had to unpack some things, right? Coming from Guyana, going to the U.S., and then, you know, keeping kind of moving internationally. What do you think, if you sort of can think back to their experiences, at least at what you remember of as a kid, and of course that's clouded by being a kid. Mm -hmm. What do you think that you sort of, you, you're doing things that are maybe similar to what they did or, or are you, is your expat experience looking different? And maybe even how, and, and, and I know you have the added caveat that you are a professional mm -hmm. psychologist. So there's always a lot of reflection that goes on <laughs> in terms of, you know, when I think about this, maybe this wasn't was the most healthy <laughs> or whatever, but how do you, how do you think your experiences even, even look different just in, in how you're doing expatriation? And mm -hmm. even if you want to take it broader, if it makes it simpler, and I don't know if it does make it simpler, just even identity, right. And how you're kind of navigating the world yeah I think it's interesting I think that you know my my parents didn't necessarily have the same like I think maybe that's why in some ways I talked about that of like this where do you unpack your identities and uh how do you deal with it so I think um in some ways materially we were more taken care of in these corporate placements overseas but that also created more of this like insulation of um, being in the expat bubble. And I think there are definitely things that they did that got us out of that, that were different. Um, and we weren't like part of the American club and, and, and attempted to, but we never um, really learned the languages. And so that's something that's been different. I think me, living here or in Fiji or just trying to 
I, and I think there's a little, there's, it depends on how much psychological space and energy you have to that too. I also feel like there's kind of this thing in expat circles of the pressure of like learn the language or else it means you're not integrating. And I think, yes, that's part of it. But I think there's also honoring where you are in your life, what you have energy for, what you have space for. And I think there's a lot of things that we kind of add on top of like this burden that we have to do this this way and that way. And I think maybe another thing that I've had more of a privilege of, I would say, is uh, my parents being part of this journey to some extent with me. So um, I think that this part I'm very lucky is that, I mean, I blame them in a way that I'm living so far because they, they, they gave me the bug to, to travel, but I'm lucky in that they'll come visit me. And uh, my mom has spent, uh, quite a bit of time with me at different points in Fiji, especially. And I got a whole new experience of um, what it is to be intergenerational, maybe as an expat. And it's very communal, the culture there. And I feel like I have relationships with people there I wouldn't have otherwise had if I didn't have like mom in tow, more or less. And seeing us as this mother-daughter pair and we, and traveling together. And uh, there was certain aspects that I think she was able to bring in from her childhood, like these communal aspects. My mom is a big cook. So she was, when I was at work, she would be cooking more food than for the two of us. So she would just like go around to the neighbors with, and I would just never think to do that or be kind of shy in a way. And it's funny is she doesn't, she doesn't do this in, in Texas, you know? <laughs> And so there was like parts of her identity that kind of was able to come out. And I got to learn about her childhood through that experience. So I, I don't know if it's an exact answer to your question, but there is something about being an intergenerational expat that I really feel privileged to uh, really seeing different aspects of my family's identity come up or as my, as my sisters have come. Uh, one of them was saying to me, I, I threw, I, this is a irony in, in Fiji that, um, there was, there's actually a lot of Caribbean students and young professionals because it's part of, you know, sort of the Commonwealth of, and similar. And so I threw a Guyanese party, my first Guyanese party ever I threw in Fiji. And my sister was there and she reflected back, this is actually the first party she had been to with where there wasn't a white person. And um, that was probably just because my, my partner had already moved to Cameroon at that point. I was kind of closing up shop in, in Fiji. But it, it's been like my traveling experience. I've been uh, sort of been able to bring my family along for the ride. And we've been, and we've been continuing to grow together and it's adding to our experiences and our story as a family. So that's been really special. Yeah. And I, and I know, and that was, I guess that was something unexpected out of our story in particular. But I don't think we, we talk enough about, and it's interesting about what you said about your mom making enough food and giving it to neighbors. It's not something she necessarily does in Texas, but like, I don't think we talk enough about what people leave behind when they move. Do you know what I mean? So when you leave your home space, 
Um, and I, I particularly say this for generations that are older than ours, right? That, so I think about people who left countries in the 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, and beyond, right? I, I don't think there's always this deep dive in terms of, yes, they've moved to this other country for this experience, but there is some there is some loss and there's some grief, right? Because you are leaving what you know. And I and you see this in TCK literature now, and I think you're seeing more talking about grief. But I, I think just in general, and I, I always particularly think about expats and, and immigrants of color because that doesn't get even dived as much as as maybe some other other spaces. And so it's interesting to sort of hear <laughs> it's sort of like some things have risen to the top that were always in, in your mom. But like yeah. where you were allowed a space for her to like let that bubble to the surface, right? That maybe doesn't always get to get some shine. Does that make kind of some sense there? Absolutely. And just to see her and connect with her in this other way. And I think you're right because there's this element of, of, of the grief, which we know about now. I don't think we really knew about that in the early 90s. But in my family, if you think about what my parents went through, I mean, just sort of like grief from leaving another, you know, they, they left a whole world behind and, and still haven't been back, right? Yeah. And so for them to understand or contextualize or even support us as parents for kids to explain or articulate those losses, they didn't really happen or for us to figure out what to do with them. Mm-hmm. And I think it was much more of a, well, the world will always misunderstand us. Is, is what I was getting. And something that ha- that's been happening, I think, more recently and maybe more out of my experience is we've been able to do this work a little bit more together of uh, unpacking like and, and remembering what are these things that were left behind about their childhood or their values. And, I, and one thing that is talked about is the sort of loss of community and I think it happened more so is because we also left like New York and I have a lot of family in Florida, these epicenters of Caribbean culture and spaces to be in Texas. And so there isn't that built in community even there. Mm-hmm. And somehow it can get expressed in Vanuatu or Fiji, these Pacific Island countries and uh I think that's that's sort of like the beauty of like the global citizen prototype mm-hmm. that we talk about what T what TCKs can be or what they could do sort at a, at its best is finding these transcultural connections and values and humanity and expression and and we're always going to be a mix of identities now. This is what globalization is. And this is what communities are struggling with uh, is that their young people are going to be more westernized even if they they never leave the country because they're consuming that media or the education system and what uh, are the international benchmarks are westernized mm-hmm. they're uh, they're from what, you know, in psychology research, most of it is from these weird societies, right? Westernized, educated, industrialized, democratic, and rich countries. Weird, the weird acronym that we use a lot in cross-cultural psychology. Uh, 
So, <laughs> so follow up question um, because I know a lot of your work and and you have a interest, of course, in, in being inclusionary. How do you think, especially as we think about expat bubbles, how can we be more inclusionary or at least sensitive to the different groups that are kind of filtering in and out? I think that's a big topic, especially with the kind of year 2020 was politically and and this idea of, of you know, DEI. Well, there's some, the, the core, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and then justice may be added at the end or belonging, depending on, on, on what group you're, you're with. But what do you just think as a practitioner, like practically, what are, what are ways and spaces that communities that are highly mobile can still be mindful and be inclusionary and create these safe spaces for everyone to kind of survive and thrive? Yeah, and I think this is, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot because I disagree with the idea that just because you've had these international experiences, it means that you're internationally um, competent, multiculturally competent, or automatically sensitive. Yeah, I think that's been, I think, the biggest part of my journey. And on top of that, being a psychologist who's really focused on diversity and cultural issues. And I think the biggest surprise to me as an adult, especially moving through Fiji, Cameroon, uh, and places that are lesser developed than the United States is my privilege and uh, the saliency of my American identity. And the script really flipped. It, It went from really trying to sort of prove myself as an American and I belong here to suddenly having to, um, what could be perceived as having to defend American policies, the role that the American government has played in the Pacific, for example, and and nuclear testing and all these things that we didn't really learn about as Americans in school. And uh, then now married to a French person and being in Cameroon um, under the, the French, with the French government, So really understanding that there are now colonizer identities that have become part of how I'm moving through this world and the spaces, you know, as a brown person. And so there's a lot to unpack there. I think in the middle of just being an expat, there's so much of us trying to just move from the chaos to find stability, build our own lives, and and sort of develop being self-resilient and having a community, building a community along the way. But on top of that, I think that's something I didn't really expect to have to unpack at the level that I did of who am I really going to be in this world? Like, what is my identity going to be here? Uh, If I look at creating a value-based life and how I'm going to manifest that in this new place. uh, And I think that this is powerful work that can be kind of scary, but as a TCK, as a person of color, I can't imagine uh, not being better positioned to actually be grappling with these questions because when you're living a global life, you are having a global impact and it really could be for good. And there's not really easy answers to this question, but I don't think we did devote enough psychological space to really unpacking and thinking about that 
and even the ways that we can harness these identities of privilege, like if we are coming from westernized countries, or even if living in a westernized country, um, like living in Europe, but um, being in a space where maybe people aren't unpacking questions of race and privilege as much as we are in the United States, and having that awareness. Now thinking about how to, what do I do with this in a, in a global context? I think these are powerful questions about how we live our lives as expats, as people abroad, as ambassadors of uh, our passport countries, more or less, or as, as global citizens and developing that identity of global citizenship. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for for taking the time to to not only unpack your own story, but to share what you're seeing and and you know to really see, especially through the through your professional lens, because I know that you've just given me a lot of things to really think about. And I know that those who are listening in are definitely going to reflect back. And so with every guest that comes on here, I just like to ask. So if someone wants to work with you, are you let me ask this first, because I, I always have to ask this of my therapists and counselors. Are you what what does your license cover? So are you able to work with folks who are only in the U.S. or in other parts of the world? Who are you able to take on? Right. So for the most part, most of my therapy clients live and stay in Texas, although I am able to do therapy with some expats, depending on what country that they are in. What I really recommend is doing coaching with me. If you are an expat or a nomad and you're moving around and I'll sort of screen to see if coaching is appropriate for what you're looking for. If not, I'll try to help you find somebody where you are who can work with you with therapy. But if it is appropriate for coaching, then I can follow you through your many countries and many adventures. And uh, that's why I offer both. And I also just, sorry, yeah, I just, I also wanted to mention that I also work with families, um, mostly with adolescents and adult relationships and with couples. So I really think it's important to work with the whole system. And so that's just one other thing that, uh, one other way that I, I work with global folks. And thank you for clarifying, because I the more I do this, the more I'm like, mm-hmm. I need to know what your license covers, right? <laughs> and 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 I will say, you know, therapists and counselors have been very great about saying, I can do this <laughs> under if you're in this geographic region. Exactly. But I, I can't necessarily, you know, depending on where you are. And so I think that's a very important reminder for those of you who are listening who might be seeking specifically mental wellness assistance and health um help that you just want to make sure you have a practitioner that is able to do what they need to do and and can work with you based on where they are. Cause we don't want them to get in trouble because they're trying to help. And like I said, they're, they're usually really good about making sure their licenses are fine, but still I want to put that out there. So where can we find you on the interwebs? All right. Uh, You can find my website at www.drnita.com on Instagram as the global psychologist and I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, all the things. So um, I'm sure Amanda will drop the links. Connect with me wherever you're at. (laughs) 
<laughs> we will. I always say, if you can't wait, you can just go to any of our social medias. We are almost always following the people we have on the show. But I will have the information either in the show notes or up at the theblackexpat.com. So when her episode goes is live, which if you guys are hearing it, it is live. All the contact information will be up on our website as well. Thank you once again for joining us. I, like I said, super excited to find someone who is living in Cameroon. Thank and, you. And, and it was my pleasure. I know. <laughs> we, made, we made it happen. Took a bit, but we made it happen. So uh, thank you guys all for listening. Until next time, we will meet up again. You just heard an episode of the Global Chatter podcast, a project by the Black Expat. It's hosted by me, Amanda Bates, and it's edited by Stephanie Fuccio. To learn more about this podcast or to learn more about The Black Expat, visit theblackexpat.com. <laughs>